Hi, I'm Dr. Chad Briscoe, and this is the Molecular Moments Podcast, an ongoing conversation with industry leaders about the various nuances of drug development and bioanalysis. We're going to be talking about science the way that scientists do, and in each episode, we'll explore the relationships that help us become the scientists we are today. In today's episode, we sat down with guest scientist, Dr. Marianne Fjording, scientific officer at Bioagilytics, who joined us all the way from Copenhagen, Denmark. Marianne has more than 25 years of experience within the industry, and before joining the Bioagilytics team, she spent almost 15 years at the pharma giant Novo Nordisk. She's also super involved in the industry. She and I had a great discussion about her expertise in biomarkers, making the jump from pharma to CRO, and the hobbies that she has used to help fill the time during quarantine. So without further ado, here's the second episode of Molecular Moments. Welcome to the Molecular Moments podcast. Marianne, would just like to ask you a little bit about uh, about your background. How did you land in the pharmaceutical industry, become a scientist? Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. So I'm located in Denmark, in Copenhagen, and I started at the University of uh, Copenhagen studying biochemistry. I think that was a very interesting part, and I found out very early in the study that I actually wanted to go into pharma. So after three years, you normally do your master's thesis in Denmark. So I started my master's thesis at a small biotech company called Neosearch. It was very small at that time, and I made uh, several kind of uh, essays there, uh, and it was related to uh, neurological diseases like Parkinson and Alzheimer and so on. So I actually found out very early that I wanted to work into pharma. So early on the assays, I mean, I guess you're 20 so years. I don't want to, I don't mean to date you and <laughs> at all here, but what were the assay formats uh, when you first started out in this field? It was a biotech company uh, related to small molecules, uh, and it was in the research area. So my uh, thesis was about to find uh, a new uh, small drug compound that could increase the neurite outgrowth of the cells. So I was working with uh, both a cell line and uh, did a lot of uh, cell-based uh, assays. And then I was also working with primary uh, cells, uh, taking them out from the mice and then grow them as well. And then tested if these uh, drugs, when they were added to the cell culture, could uh, increase or sustain the neurite outgrowth of these cells. It was super interesting at that point. Yeah, that is awesome. Yeah. So one of the things, again, still kind of focusing on your early part of your career that I find talking to scientists is that there's often a personal connection, something that has drawn them into the pharmaceutical industry. Was there any moment like that for you in your uh, career? Yes, so actually my father, he's also a biochemistry and he was also working with uh, neuroscience. So that was, of course, a path for me as well on this regard. And actually, I was also then uh, later on involved in a lot of screening of uh, like high throughput screening of small uh, compounds in different kind of assays. And that led me now to signal transduction. So I was working at least 10 or 15 years with the signaling transduction with the um, MAP kinases and ERK phosphorylation and JAX and STAT pathways as well. I know that myself, as well as uh, many people in the bioanalytical industry, would view you as an expert in the analysis of biomarkers. Is that where you see your expertise as well? What do you really see that you do that you bring to the pharmaceutical industry? 
Based on also what I learned in the early days on very research part, I was actually after my master's thesis, I did a PhD also at a hospital in Denmark as well. And then I was working more with the signal transduction and I was also working with a professor called Stein Gammeltoft. I learned a lot from him as well on what kind of uh, how to proceed in tyrosine kinase signaling and, and that led me then into insulin signaling and IGF-1 signaling and then I... I moved into a job at Novo Nordisk as well. Yeah, so that's interesting because that area of Denmark is, you know, Copenhagen, obviously the most populated area of Denmark. There's a lot of pharmaceutical industry and biotech research in that area. I personally sort of have a fascination as a chemist who was interested in a lot of physics with the history of nuclear bombs and things like that. So I think of Niels Bohr, right, going back to one of the greatest uh, Danish scientists. What do you think it is about that area of Denmark or Denmark in general that has made it such an incredible scientific hotbed for pharmaceutical industry? Yeah, that's a super good question, actually. I don't know. I think maybe we are very uh, curious by nature from Denmark. I mean, we, we like to explore stuff and find out if there's new way of doing things. So, And then there has also maybe been some coincidence and that time when it all started out. I mean, I was also working at Leo Pharma. They uh, was also founded by August Kroh, who was also part of uh, Novo Nordisk finding insulin. So, I mean, maybe these guys, they also knew each other. And then, I mean, part of uh, all these kind of things, eventually you will have a small hub coming up with small biotech and yeah people are curious by nature i think was novador i guess you know i do think of novador as being a diabetes company and and uh, first and they do a lot of other things now and uh, you know early insulin at eli Lilly. i guess i never really knew which one was first were they around the same time right i, I really have no idea that's a super good question. I think it's also, uh, I don't know, maybe a little political, I think. And then, then also on the part on the, on the different um, time period as well. I mean, I, of course, think that it was uh, maybe uh, August Cole and uh, no one noticed that was first, at least also to make a recombinant as well. And I mean, maybe they also at that time also had a lot of uh, interaction going to meetings like we are doing now and getting inspired by each other, right? Yeah, well, I have, as I think many people do, I have a lot of friends that are, uh, well, type 1, type 2 diabetics. And so it's uh, wonderful for everyone. And I think insulin is, you know, an early uh, huge success in the pharmaceutical industry. But uh, I think everyone wins. And I think we see that collaboration across the industry uh, now anyways. So I wanted to talk to you, get a little bit deeper, uh, specifically in that biomarker space. Uh you know, we were really excited when you joined uh, Bioagilytics to bring the expertise in a whole, you know, taking us to a whole nother level with biomarker expertise. But first, what sort of motivated you to jump from a career in a pharmaceutical company over to the service industry of a contract research organization? Yeah, thank you. That's also a very good question. So, I mean, I have been working at least more than 20, close to 25 years in biotech and pharma from, as I said, when I started out my master. And I've been working with assay development and validation in both the research and in the non-clinical space. And then, of course, in the clinical trials where I was supporting a lot of my colleagues with different kind of things related to essays. And I really like to have that interaction with a lot of different people and helping them with these kind of troubleshooting in both in essay development, but also for what their need is. I mean, they sometimes they, at least some of my 
former colleague also at Novo Nordisk, and I don't want to put them on top here, but I think that many of them were kind of having difficulties in navigating in the space. What should we measure? I mean, should we measure all these? And then sometimes, I mean, when you are a researcher, you get so excited, you want to measure like 30 or 50 different kind of biomarker in a trial. And I think it is rewarding to guide them and help them on what to choose and what to go on. And then for my move to going to a CRO, I think that I just wanted to broaden my horizon a little more to find out if there was more people I could help with this kind of jobs and so on. So it's not so much about this whole things with the sample analysis. It's more on the process of getting people started on going on the right track for these ones. So I think on a CRO, you get the chance to talk to a lot of different kind of client and getting to know a lot of different kind of drug modalities, disease indications. So it would not just be one disease indication and maybe just more or less the same drug modalities in different varieties. So I think that could also be, I mean, for me, I think that could also be rewarding for me on that part. Wow, there was a lot to unpack in that answer. That's pretty cool. And for me as a career CRO person, uh, you know, I've been almost 25 years only working for a couple of different CROs. I've always had that interest to kind of see into the other side, but I really enjoy, as you mentioned, working with many different companies with many different disease states. Sometimes it really challenges you because you go into a call and you know you have an hour to, to read up on this new disease that you don't know anything about and you want to try to be as much of an expert as you can, but you know three hours later, you're maybe talking about a completely different disease. It might be uh, one kind of oncology in the morning, and it might be diabetes or lupus in the afternoon. So it's certainly fascinating in that way, isn't it? It is fascinating. But I actually think that also many diseases are somehow also related to some kind of immunology. I mean, you have uh, maybe inflammation or you have some kind of signaling pathways. And many of these can also be very much related. So you're not just starting from totally from scratch. And I think from my background, both working in neurological diseases and also in inflammation diseases, uh, rheumatoid arthritis and skin diseases, and now also diabetes and liver diseases and cardiovascular. I mean, you, you get a very broad knowledge of all of these diseases. And anyway, these are also maybe some of our clients. They, that's also their top priorities, right? Yeah, I feel like that's one thing I've learned a lot as I've gained more and more expertise in the biomarker space over the last eight or 10 years is the connection between different diseases. You know, when we when we looked back 20 years and most things were small molecule treatments and we were measuring PK and you were really didn't have the same focus, right? And now, now I see across, like you said, across arthritis and cardiac disease and oncology, right? There's the inflammation that you mentioned. There's, you know, markers of different types of stress response in the body. And it really does tie the diseases together and helps to uh, understand the complexity of the uh, human systems as well as, yeah, how, how there's so much interplay. And I've learned a lot from you in the short time that we've been colleagues. I really appreciate that. Another area that I've found fascinating that you've talked to me a lot in our normal work is talking about the different levels of sophistication of different biomarkers. And sometimes we talk about, okay, there's the sort of simple, soluble biomarkers, the cytokines and the other circulating biomarkers. And then, and then more and more target engagement biomarkers have become a very interesting topic to explore. And I'd, I'd love you to dive into that and talk a little bit about why that space is so important and what's interesting about it, where it's going. 
Yes, because I mean, a biomarker is not just the word biomarker. I mean, when you will have the one that you also know when you go to your doctor and if you think that you have fever and you want to make sure that you maybe want antibiotic, then you get to measure the CRP and then the doctor hopefully says that now you can get antibiotics. So that would be a biomarker. So that's the most diagnostic one. But I mean, there's also all the one where we're going more into the drug-related one where you want to make sure that the drug actually that mechanism of action for that drug. How is it actually that the drug is working maybe in your animal model and later on also in human? And for that, you would also need biomarker and especially also the target engagement biomarker if the drug actually hits its target. So sometimes, I mean, we have several kind of drug also on the market where we know, yes, they have a super good effect, but also maybe only for some persons and maybe not for everybody. And that could also be related to how they are hitting the target. I mean, so that could be good for people to have more target engagement biomarker to make sure that your drug is uh, on the right path and you can go faster to the market as well. When you talk to customers about biomarkers, you know, it's not uncommon in the conversations, as you said, to maybe want 20 or 30 biomarkers, maybe you need a engagement biomarker. And of course, these things are also expensive. They take time. Tell me about how that conversation might go when someone comes to you and they say, hey, we want to do these 20 biomarkers. Do you say, sure, yeah, we'll give you a quote, we'll run them all? Or how do you go about advising in that way? I think for most part, I mean, you again have to ask, what is it that exactly, what kind of answers are they looking for? So again, if they are having a new drug that they just simply can see that it is working now here in the animal models, it work in some uh, disease uh, model and also now they move into uh, animals in tox and also in human and want to explore more, then it is good to have some kind of more on uh, a lot of uh, multiplexing and proteomics to check how is it with your biomarker program here. So as you can also call it a fishing expedition, they want to explore which one is actually biomarkers going up and down related to that disease. For these, again, I also kind of advise them to narrow these panel down into a few again. I mean, maybe not 30, but at least maybe 10 or something, because it's also super difficult to look on these data afterwards. I mean, you have to have a lot of bioinformatics uh, to look into uh, if this is actually making sense in the whole proteomic space. And then I'm also asking again on, again, related to the target engagement, I say if they have, for instance, a, a monoclonal against a cytokine or something, if they also want to have some more deep dive into that assay for, for instance, for that cytokine or protein. One of the other challenges with those is the stage-related validations of biomarkers and qualification in those terms. So how do you sort of guide or could you generally kind of summarize as you move through the development process how that uh, changes? And for that one, I will also use my experience together with the, the regulators. I mean, from when I have interaction with authorities as well. So that would also be, I mean, for many first human dose is an exploratory trial. So, I mean, you can test more or less all you want and explore from that one. And when you're going into more on a phase two, I think that you should definitely narrow it down and making sure that you have some more um, 
specific biomarker that you want to measure. Also because sometimes when you are going to have a big panel multiplex, it's not always you can relate on the exact numbers on the concentration. Of course, you will get a concentration level, but you can maybe not get that confirmed in a single plex uh, ELISA later on. So um, you should also look more on patterns if it's going up and down and always compare to baseline or placebo and so on. So it's always relative quantitative on these assays as well. And on the state's rate, I would definitely say when you're moving into a phase two, you should be more specific on what you're going into. To be honest, I think that it should start much earlier, uh, all the way to when you are actually going to uh, find your lead candidate of your drug. I mean, if at that time you also need to have a process for which biomarker you want to measure in the clinic. So a biomarker plan should also be in place very early in research and should be in place when you are going to find your lead candidate. But of course, I acknowledge that it can be difficult for smaller companies to do that as well, right? Yeah, and I guess that's part of where your role can come in now, right? As a, as a service provider is to help come with a biomarker plan, right? So Exactly, yeah. And then also to be specific, what should it contain? Should it contain that you're also looking into immunohistochemistry? Should you see if your target is expressed, for instance, in the liver or in the blood? Or Yeah, I mean, in that... Uh, tissues that you're also going to target. And then um, also if you should look into some genomic plan as well, is it something where you only can measure the messenger RNA but never find the proteins? And then also figure out is that then relevant for moving forward as well? So that should be several parts of this one that you need to look into. So yeah, so there's a lot of different aspects of what to look into with biomarkers, as I think everyone expected. So it may be advice from your experience as a client at Nova Nordisk in the past of different CROs or an innovator company that needs partners, but now also coming a little bit from your role in a service provider, a CRO, what should the partners look for when they're, or the sponsor, the project sponsors look for when they're looking for a good CRO partner? I mean, that you're not just taking on the hat saying, yes, I can uh, do this assay and then I set up and validate everything just as if it was a PK assay. Uh, you should also look into if uh, what is the biology behind? I mean, should you look into if it should be in serum or in plasma? Should it be and what kind of plasma should it be? Should it be heparin or EDTA or citrate? Because sometimes these biomarkers are only stable in certain matrix. I still remember when I started in at Novo Nordisk, I had a colleague who was uh, going crazy because all the samples was uh, were taken in uh, EDTA plasma, and that was for a hemophilia project. And she said, oh, but everybody should know, of course, that these uh, percolation factors, they're not stable in EDTA, they are only stable in citrate plasma. And then I was just saying, okay, that's definitely a learning for someone here <laughs> in the place. So, I mean, you also need to look into what kind of matrix, you should actually know the biology. So when you're asking for which service provider should you actually approach, it should also be somebody who has a, actually have some biology experience that they actually also know what your needs are for that or at least can help you guide on these questions for setting up, up the essay because it's not just to set up an ELISA or something or another kind of essay platform. You need also to have asking this question, what, what is the biology behind it again? 
So I'm impressed. We've spoken about 15 minutes or so on biomarkers, and you have not yet used the terms fit for purpose or context of use, which is pretty amazing. But I would like you to (laughs) unpack those terms for me a little bit, uh, just it doesn't seem like a complete discussion about biomarkers without without using those two terms. So maybe you can just unpack those for me a little bit in the context of everything else. Yeah, exactly. So when I started doing more regulated bioanalysis, as I said, I did more or less 10, 15 years of my career in, in research part. We never talk about fit for purpose or anything like that or what the biomarker is for. We you just continue on doing your research and getting so excited that you could measure at least something in that one. So I attended one of these AAPS meetings when I started uh, at Novo Nordisk, and then I heard this fit for purpose, and I said, okay, that's a cool uh, name. And actually, the more you are actually thinking about that word, uh, fit for purpose, it is um, what you need for your essay. It has actually been the essay has a purpose, you want to measure that biomarker, and then you want to make sure that the assay validation actually is fitting into that. And that relates also to the which stage it is in. I mean, if it is in a talk study, you might only need a few parameters to test. And in a first human dose, you might not even have all the related uh, samples to do a pre-study on doing your assay validation. But you make it as best as you can for your fit for purpose on that. So I think using these words is um, actually uh, very fit for biomarkers because it's a good wording on the context of use. It's also a good wording. It's a similar one because it's also on, uh, you again have to ask uh, what is uh, the context of use. It's a little more difficult to figure out for people because then they have to relate to if it is a predictive biomarker or prognostic or sometimes, and people can mix up some of the wording on the context of use. But in essence, they are very much related, these two one, fit for purpose and context of use. You mentioned something that made me think about, you know, the past, right? In my past and your past. And I, so many international meetings, I would see you all over the world, right? And, and we always knew you'd be there. And I'm curious, not from a business side, but I wanted to talk personally a little bit. You have a love for travel, I think, not just business travel, right? So maybe we could switch gears for a little bit, then we'll come back to, you know, pharmaceutical industry and experience. So tell me about your travel experience. Maybe there's one amazing trip or tell me a trip that you want to do after you can travel post-COVID travel or something. (laughs) Oh yeah, that would also be around the world, I guess. (laughs) And no, I think, I mean, traveling is also being to be curious, right? You can always find a place around in the world where there's new interesting people uh, you can uh, learn uh, more about this uh, culture that are there yeah i have been around many places at one point we actually took uh, six months off my family and i and we traveled around the world at that time my boys they were only uh, six and eight years old we started out in uh, nicaragua and it was only uh, five days in, in that travel then my younger son he broke his arm And then you're sitting there and we were on the absolute most remote place in the whole world on a small island called Little Corn Island. So there's a big corn island and then there's one called Little Corn Island on the Nicaragua coast. And you're just sitting there with a six-year-old who has broke his arm and then like, okay, 
what now? <laughs> and I mean, should we go all the way back to Denmark? Should we find out how can it be repaired here in Nicaragua? And I mean, I grew up and then I still remember in the, the 90s when you had all these uh, kind of a civil war there. So, I mean, you were still like, hmm, can they only do about the, the country and so on? But actually, it was so fascinating. So on this very lonely beach, there was one other couple. It was an American couple. They were doctors. And they said to us, don't worry, a six-year-old arm, it can always be fixed. I mean, you can either go all the way back to Denmark or you can have it fixed here. And then we looked up and then found out that there was a super nice uh, hospital in Managua. So we took the rest of the day, packed all our stuff, took first a small boat to Big Corn Island and then uh, <laughs> a flight from Big Corn Island to Managua and then a taxi to the hospital. All that was also arranged by uh, our very small hotel where there was only, I think there was only five huts on this uh, hotel. It was on the beach and they helped us with everything. Yeah, so it was a, a touching story and uh, my son got a super cool in vitro x-ray set up on his arm so it was never open uh, by that but it was just kind of merged together it was a super cool super modern hospital and uh, yeah you can just only get surprises and we could have never got the same uh, kind of things done in Denmark so I think from that and then we continue the whole travel going to Australia, he got his, he could finally uh, stretch his arm fully. <laughs> so it was a funny story. But I mean, you learn so much on travel and especially on people and getting surprises and yeah, see things that you never thought you would experience to see. Little Corn Island. Well, and, I, and I can appreciate Nicaragua. One of my personal passions or one of the things I'm involved in is some of the Honduran missions that I was in Honduras a couple of years ago. And so I can really appreciate uh, what, you know, what you're saying with, with Nicaragua. I think it's not too much different. And uh, well, and then you went on to Australia. I love that. It's not, uh, it's not, we're back in Denmark. It's no, then we're on to Australia and he started feeling better. Well, he's probably a tough kid from it. And actually we ended up in Hong Kong. And that's the funniest thing because uh, at that time we just came to our hotel and we went around in Hong Kong. And then the, we saw in the news that a hotel in Hong Kong was now totally closed down due to SARS. Oh. So that was when we had the bird flu wow. at that time. And then we were just like, Oh my God, what if it was our hotel? Because at that time we just simply wanted also to go home a little more and have, and the kids wanted to be back to the, but I think a whole hotel was uh, closed down due to a tourist coming from uh, Mexico and uh, he went into that hotel and then apparently he had a bird flu. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about is uh, you're also very involved, you know, coming back to the pharmaceutical industry and you're very involved in the regulatory side and different societies. I think, you know, ICHM10, that term maybe doesn't mean a lot to everyone, but if you could explain that, what that is and, you know, why you're involved, how you're involved and where that document's at, I'd love to get an update on that from you. So the ICHM10 is on PK uh, drug assays and it's a method validation that is being covered. So it's an harmonization of the current one. We have several guidelines at the moment from FDA, EMA and Japan. And we also have in Canada and we have in uh, China as well. And so it's a harmonization of all these uh, documents that we want to have as one document going forward and to make sure that when we are submitting a drug program that uh, 
it is aligned with all agencies on these process for doing an essay validation. And it has been so rewarding. Uh, it's a super cool group that I'm involved with. If you can say that, it's a group of more than 35 regulators and then uh, us from the industry as well. So I'm now the topic lead from Pharma the American uh, Association on uh, Pharmaceuticals. And we are having uh, some really good discussions and also where we are disagreeing, of course, uh, on different kind of topics. So on what we should approach and how to approach it. But you actually learn also a lot from the regulators when you hear what they're saying, that they see these kind of um, issues in different topics. And then, of course, you have to also learn where they're coming from and also they also have to accept where we are coming from and we all have the same purpose. We want to have safe drugs on the market for all individuals. It's a super rewarding um, process to be involved in. And where we are at the moment, it was in a public consultation last year and uh, we received a lot of comments, actually over 2,000 comments. And we are now going through all of these comments, addressing them, uh, seeing uh, how can we... Uh, make the guidelines a little more clear in the wording and also on that. And we should also acknowledge that we will make a training material for this one. So the document will not be alone. So there will be a Q&A section and there will also be training material, which will kind of explain on what to do. How should you prepare calibrators and QC, for instance, out of two different stock solution and all these kind of things. So that will be explained also in this training material. So if somebody wanted to get involved at this point, is it more of a hold on and wait, things are coming, or is there a way somebody could help with the training material? That sounds like a huge job, even with 35 people, it sounds like a huge job. <laughs> it is a huge job, I think, but we will also get help from the ICH organization on that as well for that. But I think it will also be us as a group making the material. But of course, I will reach out to all my friends around here in pharma and say having them involved as well, right? Yeah, that's fantastic. And talking about uh, working with your friends, one of the other topics I really like to explore with my guests is about mentorship. And one of my industry mentors was, uh, I call her the mother of fit for purpose, was Jean Lee, who I worked for for a while in my first role in, in a CRO. And I was very fortunate to work with Jean. And you can imagine the questions that she would uh, throw at you and really make you think deeper. So are there any mentors that you can think of now that you're, you know, a little bit further in your career? Maybe you're playing a role as a mentor. I'd, I'd like to hear about that a little bit. I don't think I will call out specific names on that, but I definitely on, on the mentor part, I, I think that there has been many good uh, meetings where people have been a, a good inspiration uh, among AAPS, but also from EBF as well, which I have been part of as well. And I mean, many of these people are all kind of super good uh, mentor people that can give a lot to the audience when they are doing uh, talks on that and for myself I al always want to for my mentor role is uh, my door is always open I feel like this is the most important part for being a role model or, or a mentor for, for people that they can always ask questions there's no such thing as a stupid question so they can always come and reach out to me and I will help them and whatever it is and at the moment also to stand behind the scientists and the project managers now here at Bioagilytics that I'm here for them kind of 
just behind them, pushing them a little further so that they know exactly on, on the next step and making sure that they are confident in what they're doing. So for me, that's, that's a good mentor on that part. That's fantastic because certainly you know, I love that you said that about your door being open. And I think, uh, you know, you're somebody I reach out to with questions. Certainly it's a nice group with, with uh, yourself and Jim McNally, my partners in this very similar role that we play within the organization. So uh, that's exciting. So I, yeah, I want to close with asking you about something that you sent me a while ago that I just went, wow. When I asked you for a picture, uh, what, some August or something like that, and you sent me this picture with the most amazing tomatoes I've ever seen in my life. I've never seen so many kinds of tomatoes. I've never seen such, <laughs> just look delicious. I have to come visit yeah. you next. Uh, next next, next August. August, yes. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Tell me about the tomatoes. So it started out very small. I only uh, had like uh, two different kind of uh, tomatoes uh, and I had a greenhouse, uh, what was it, five years ago. And then I find out, oh, this was interesting. And then uh, I joined a group actually of all places on Facebook for tomatoes enthusiasm. I learned so much more. So, I mean, it's not just red and round. It can also be oval and green and it can have stripes on. It can be black. It can be uh, yellow with black top and I mean it can have wrinkles it can be all kind of thing and then the taste is also very different so this year I ended up maybe due to COVID I don't know what happened here but I had 100 different <laughs> <laughs> species of tomatoes in my garden and uh, my husband he had to build an extra field for me so that we also could have uh, tomatoes outside of the greenhouse which of course is a super challenging thing here in Denmark with the wind and rain and no sun and so on. But it actually turned out super cool. And I think it's funny. I mean, this small little seed can grow into delivering so much joy. My whole family is also now having uh, tomatoes all over <laughs> to see them grow and to see the different shapes and uh, colors and uh, so on. And also taste. I mean, some of them, they can taste like an orange or a plum or the kind of a non-sweet uh, sour part as well. So that's uh, that's very good. I love, I love tomatoes. I really do. <laughs> you know, you mentioned sour. Did you have you ever had fried green tomatoes from like that's a Southern American uh, typical yeah, Southern yeah. American dish? I love. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and here the other day, I uh, I actually harvest the last one here in in uh, mid November. Isn't that amazing? Some of them were also small and green, and I have to yeah make them um, a relish or something like that. And that was also very good as well. Wow, that's fantastic. Marianne, we've talked about a lot today and I appreciate it so much. I think your insights are valuable for me, for the pharmaceutical industry, and just very interesting in general. Uh, is there anything else that you might want to just add? Like, wish Chad had asked me about that or any closing comments from you? Or No, I think it has been a very pleasant uh, conversation that we had here today and uh, we can have uh, more on uh, session number two, maybe someday. <laughs> and uh, I think it has been, uh, yeah, very good. And thank you. Wonderful. Well, we will do it again. That's all for episode two. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app so you never miss a conversation. If you'd like to hang out with us outside of the podcast, we have a lot of webinars and other presentations, not just from Marianne and myself, but from uh, others at, uh, at BioAgelytics. 
if you want to visit bioagilytics.com to see what's coming up and how you can stay in touch. Uh, We're always here. So uh, thanks again. Molecular Moments would not be possible without the support of our sponsor, Bioagilytics Labs. Bioagilytics is a global contract research organization specializing in large molecule bioanalysis. Based in Durham, North Carolina, with labs in Hamburg, Germany, and Boston, Massachusetts, Bioagilytics provides high-quality bioanalytical services to leading pharma and biotech companies around the world. They offer assay development, validation, and sample analysis under non-GLP, GLP, and GCP, as well as GMP quality control testing. If you are looking to work with a team of highly experienced scientific and QA professionals through all phases of clinical development, look no further than Bioagilytics. For more information or to speak with their scientists today, visit their website at www.bioagilytics.com. Thanks for listening to the Molecular Moments Podcast.